Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 3 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor for Regulatory Risk at TRRI. Hello, Susanna. Delighted to be back on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming back. And and today we are going to discuss really all things remuneration. So compensation, bonuses, pay, the whole nine yards. And then also what risk and compliance officers can and should do regarding the evolving regulatory expectations in this space. Now, it's a It's a real measure of how crucial good bonus design is seen to be that the very first thing the Financial Stability Board did in the wake of the financial crisis, which was, what, a dozen years ago now, was to implement supranational compensation standards seeking to drive better risk-aware behaviours. Now, that was September 2009. We're now in 2021. The FSB has published a peer peer review of how the UK has, in practice, implemented those standards. At a high level, the conclusion was from the FSB's review that the UK had not only implemented the reforms in line with the required approach, but that it has, and I quote, examples of good practice for other jurisdictions to consider. Now, some of those specific examples include the setting of expectations through public communication to the chairs of remuneration committees, a supervisory approach that focuses on close interaction between prudential and conduct rules, and then reinforces accountability with links to compensation outcomes, and then a real focus on evaluating the regime's effectiveness. The UK now being outside of the EU, we are thinking about, and there is a potential review of, the imposed bonus cap. And to be frank, that is on many firms' wish list. Just as a recap, the EU bonus cap for material risk takers restricts variable pay to be no more than 100% of fixed pay or 200% with shareholders' approval. A proportion of that variable pay also needs to be deferred and is subject to malice. Malus is M-A-L-U-S, which enables deferred bonus payments to be forfeited if certain conditions materialise. Now, in the UK specifically, at least 40% of a material risk taker's variable pay needs to be deferred for a period of no less than three to seven years. And that can then also be clawed back under certain pre-specified circumstances for a period of seven to ten years after it's been awarded. So we have a huge swathe of rules, regulations and regulatory expectations. So, Lindsay, where are we now with the UK's position? And that is with a particular focus, given the Prudential Regulation Authority's mistake regarding reporting and bonuses. Uh, Susanna, you're referring to the PRA's very own fat finger incident. Before I come on to that in detail, um, and I promise this won't turn into a rant, but I, I do feel we have to mark the fact that um, the sort of double standard here between regulator and regulated, if a regulated entity had um, accidentally deleted a box and not collected information for two years, um, well, you know, you're a former head of compliance, Susanna, you know you would have had a ton of bricks 
come down on your head. And so um, I said, promise not to, it wasn't going to be a rant, but I, I just think it is important to to note that. So, so, so what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about uh, Form L in the uh, PRA uh, uh, jargon, and in particular, um, question 3.05 of Form L. Now, um, this was uh, accidentally deleted in um, December 2018. Um, it took the regulator 18 months to realize it was missing, and then it took them a further six, seven months to actually put it back in place. What does this form collect? Well, this form is where um, firms are supposed to tell the regulator or were supposed to be telling the regulator what action they had taken against certified individuals. Um, so if they, where they taken disciplinary action, what the outcome and the, what, uh, you know, if there'd been any uh, clawback or, you know, or pay cuts or anything, that information was supposed to be collected in that box. As I said, hasn't been collected for two years, but could actually be a very interesting data set going forward for the regulators to compare and contrast um, uh, how firms are applying the, the, the rules. Um, it, it, you have to link this, uh, the, the use of the, the formal with um, the PRA's um, SMCR um, regime. Um, in, in December, you'll remember Susanna, they uh, had a, they effectively marked their own homework. They did a review of SMCR. Um, they said it was working well. However, when you drill down into what they said at the time, you'll you'll um, you'll remember that there was a lot of data seemed to be missing. Um, so, for example, um, despite the fact that there's uh, almost eight thousand uh, people holding SMF functionality, uh, you know the the regulator had had just sixteen notifications of disciplinary action, whether that involved um, any remuneration uh, changes or amendments, uh, we don't know. And um, they'd had only 104 uh, notifications that action had been taken against certified individuals. And of course, there's tens of thousands of them. So those numbers seem very low. The regulator said at the time, you know, we, ex we expect it to be, to be receiving many, many more notifications. And so the crossover between that and this formal and capturing this information should mean that there's going to be quite a rich data set in the years to come um, you know, for regulators to compare and contrast amongst firms. So I think um, that's, that's, that's you know, interesting for one to watch for the future. Sadly, obviously, we've missed two years worth of data thus far. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is um, it's not just the PRA, Susanna. The Bank of England has been uh, looking at this area of pay and remuneration as well, hasn't it? It has. And, and it was last summer, actually, now that the Bank of England undertook really a lab experiment uh, with 250 odd participants. And it was a lab experiment really looking at behaviours and the drivers for behaviours, which, of course, is what good bonus design is supposed to uh, manage and encourage good risk-aware behaviours and not undue risk-taking. So what the Bank of England did was an experiment looking at how things like relative performance pay and bonus regulation all worked and whether or not, we're back to the EU again, the bonus cap actually does curb undue risk taking. 
Now, the Bank of England being the Bank of England was very keen to badge the results as suggestions. But I would suggest when your central bank conducts this kind of experiment and then publishes the uh, results in detail, all firms, and that's not just UK ones, really should pay attention to the lessons to be learned out of that. So regardless of jurisdiction, there were five key results coming out of this experiment. The first one was that proportional bonuses encourage greater risk taking. Now, there are a number of firms that definitely still have proportional bonuses. They may want to think about that a little bit more. Second result, without relative performance pay, bonus cap and malice can mitigate risk taking. So you have relative performance pay being a negative factor with regard to bonus cap and malice with regard to risk taking if that's there. Relative performance pay in and of itself increases risk taking. Relative performance pay weakens the risk mitigation effect from bonus cap and malice with the suggestion that competitive relative performance pay could actually create risk taking incentives. And those are, are potentially strong enough to override both the individual's inherent risk preferences and bonus rules. So another interesting one to watch. And then the last result was making the bonus conditional on the team's overall profitability can reduce risk taking. There is an absolute wealth of detail in there, and I'll, I'll include a link to the study in the episode notes. But the bank, for instance, also highlighted differences between male and female approaches to risk taking, which may be another nuance in bonus design that firms need to think about. But at the crux of it, it did come to the overall conclusion that the use of relative performance pay may well be counterproductive when it comes to the risk mitigating effects of things like the bonus cap. So bonus caps may be all very well, but you have to understand their impact and how they are being used. Um, an interesting study, I would recommend it to you. So, Lindsay, I know there are a wealth of other factors for firms to consider when they're thinking about remuneration. Um, where would you like to start on the shopping list? Okay, I think I will start with COVID-19 just because, obviously, we've all been through the last year. So um, the first thing to say is COVID-19, we saw some good examples. We saw some very good examples from, uh, we were always talking about tone from the top and leading from the top, and we, we saw... Uh, there were others, but the ones that spring to mind um, are Santander, who's a chief executive. And I think most of the board gave up um, their bonuses. Um, I think they were, they were donated to uh, a national COVID uh, action uh, campaign, I think, in Spain. And also we saw um, Joe Gardner at Nationwide uh, gave up his bonus as well. I think he took a pay cut. Uh, anyway, so we saw we saw these examples. However, that said, we have also witnessed some spectacularly unedifying uh, examples as well this year. I mean, um, the Basel Committee, the ECB, and the PRA all had to effectively come out and warn firms that bonuses, paying bonuses during COVID. Um, would not be on. Um, it, it was bonuses, dividends, and uh, you know, um, and they weren't allowed to do buybacks as well. But on the bonus aspect, 
Now, I have heard that there was some need for regulatory cover uh, just to sort of stop shareholder revol revolts, but um, that that kind of applies on the on the dividend side, less so on paying yourself bonuses. So anyway, I, I, I don't need to say any more, but I, I just think um, the optics of it for an industry which is only just a decade out from the global financial crisis were not that great. Um, more recently, in December, we had the PRA statement about um, uh, which basically greenlit the return of dividends and bonuses, although it did say um, firms should exercise a high degree of caution and prudence um, if they were going to pay bonuses again. And it also said that it would be calling in bonus plans. Now, um, it will be interesting to see um, in, in, as we go forward um, how many of these bonus plans actually got called in. Certainly bonuses are, are being paid again. So, um, And that's not an anti-bonus statement. It's just in the global pandemic, health crisis, everyone... You know, the, the the as I said, the optics of everyone seeming you know to, to be treated the same, which brings me on to um, where I'm going with all this, which is the looming conduct risk that is starting to emerge from a couple of surveys I've seen recently, um, where employees are feeling. Uh, there has been a lack of transparency and therefore a perception of unfairness in how firms, uh, and this is financial firms, uh, have dealt with uh, reducing pay during COVID. So I gave some examples at the top about executives who had taken cuts. 46% um, of employees um, in, in one of the surveys uh, said that there was a complete lack of transparency about what cuts had been made at the executive level. Uh, uh, and that was in workforces who, which had been, uh, had, to, uh, had their remuneration marked down, cut as a result of, of COVID. So, um, and, 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 and there, there was um, a second survey, which actually, uh, which was only in the asset management industry, but one of the things I, I uh, noted there was uh, fifteen percent. This was a it was a CFA Institute survey, so it was it was global, and fifteen percent of the CFA members that they had uh, surveyed had had some kind of pay cut in the last year. Uh, no, sorry, twenty three percent, fifteen percent attributed to COVID, eight percent not. But when you drilled down to the actual specifics of the job, it turned out that actually seventeen percent of sorry, 34 in total, but 17 uh, attributed to COVID, 17 attributed to health, of compliance officers had seen their pay cut in the last year, which given that we were all in this new working world where, you know, new compliance world, you know, I, I, I question the, uh, the merit of actually cutting compliance staff salary during a global pandemic, but that's what happened apparently. But the, but the, 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 the thing I want to come on to here is, and I was talking about this with Christian Hunt, who is the founder of Behavioral Compliance Consultancy, Human Risk, but he's also um, a former regulator and a former head of compliance at UBS. And so we, we were talking about what this actually, uh, Christian's a big believer in, if people start to feel they have been treated unfairly, they are more likely to 
um, either turn a blind eye or maybe misbehave themselves. And so th this this is the point. So it's and and you're the former compliance officer, Susanna, not me. I was just intrigued by you know the 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 numbers here, but it it is. It is an interesting one, and it will be one that firms will are going to have to to, to deal with. Um, be, you know, because if they, it's, it's a real cultural indicator, I would suggest as well that if people inherent or internally in a firm feel they have been inherently mistreated, their their loyalty, shall we say, to that firm almost by definition will diminish. And if you have got pockets of, or even more than pockets of discontent, you as a compliance officer are going to find your life distinctly more difficult than otherwise. However, you know, how is the compliance officer going to be able to function if they've had a pay cut, you know, perhaps out of proportion to other people? It, it, it is a cultural indicator that I would suggest boards need to be very aware of. And I suspect regulators are going to look rather closely at as well. Because if you need red flags to be waved, that's a pretty good one, to be honest. Yeah, no, no, abs absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, just highlighting it, uh, putting it out there for people to to do with what they what they uh, what they will. The other um, uh, big area I think everyone needs to be uh, aware of um, at the moment is climate and ESG and how that impacts on remuneration and so um i interviewed the um liz kinko who is the head was the head of the uh, un global compact um a year ago now and she said at the time and that was after a decade of uh promoting and working with firms uh to to get the uh sustainable uh objectives uh, sustainability goals um you know embedded in firms and everything she she said um at the time that what was needed now was it had to go into pay because you, it, 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 it had to be linked. There had to be, it, it, the, we had to move beyond rhetoric. We'd had, you know, and it had to be, and how do you ingrain it in firms? You, you, you link it hard, you know, as we know, um, you link it to pay. And it was interesting. I was listening in on the, uh, Green Swan conference yesterday, which was which is um, it's a joint venture by the uh, Network for Greening Financial uh, Financial System, the Banque de France, and um, the Bank of International Settlements. And um, a Green Swan, for those that don't know, is um, an entirely foreseeable cataclysmic event that's coming, which will have even more cataclysmic, if I can double up on my cataclysmic consequences, if we don't act. So that's a green swan. And um, uh, their particular green swan is, is climate. And so um, at that conference, it, it was interesting. There was a session on executives and how they are uh, tackling climate in their organization. Um, and it, it so happens it was UBS uh, that uh, it was UBS's Alex Weber who was talking about. Um, uh, he said, oh, you know, it has to go into pay, and they are working on putting it into pay at the moment. So they they have their uh, climate action plan, um, which they're working on. And and he, you know, and and he used one of my favorite consultants' uh, terms of. Uh, uh, if you can't measure it, it doesn't get you know it doesn't get done. Yeah. You can't manage it. You can't manage it if it's you can't measure it. That's that was what he said. And so, um, so firms are clearly now thinking about 
putting this in actually, you know, at executive level, and then as you know, it filters down through people's objectives. Um, and so I would say, you know, that that's a that's a that's a big um that's a big trend. Um and, and interestingly, um Piers Hayburn, who's director of banking and markets of the European Banking Authority, has you know has said that um the green asset ratios and the carbon intensive numbers which um EBA are working on, because once those are um in place later this year, then you know, he, those could be used to set remuneration. Uh, you know, to 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 concretely embed ESG and climate objectives in executive remuneration. Um, yeah, so that so it's, it's, it's I guess it's gradually seeping in. It's not fast enough for 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 a lot of a lot of people, but it it is it is getting there. Um, and then, of course, UK regulators um, have been warning for a couple of years that they're going to be kicking the tires on banks. Uh, climate mitigation. Um, we've got the climate stress test should be getting underway as we speak, I think. And um, uh, you know, it, I think it's inevitable that in, in part of part of that is that the regulators are going to be looking to see that the senior manager who has uh, climate responsibility, climate risk responsibility, um, has that reflected in their remuneration. And their, yeah. so, so there's the two things I would just highlight right now, COVID and ESG, Susanna. Well, then there's no, no, not small in any way, shape or form. I mean, I, I would, in, in, it's already on to takeaways. I would add in, in terms of takeaways, and then I'll go back to Lindsay for hers, that in order for firms to truly keep up to date and in line with regulatory expectations, I mean, we've mentioned remuneration committees already, but boards themselves really do now to be much more active and engaged with compensation processes. Lindsay mentioned that, you know, chief executive pay is likely to be linked to some sort of ESG or climate risk target. Boards need to be on board and understand. And in, in order for boards to be on board and understand, you're going to be needing much more risk and compliance involvement in helping boards engage and understand. I also think another one of the things that is really becoming entirely obvious, I suppose, is that the mechanisms of compensation arrangements do need to have longer time horizons. I mean, the FSB itself, a decade after it first put the rules in place, is still figuring out what good looks like in terms of compensation. And that's because there are so many moving parts. And one of those moving parts is people and the behavioural risk of people and, you know, the levers you pull to get them to have appropriate levels of risk risk taking and not inappropriate levels of risk taking. You also need, I think, from the risk and compliance perspective, much better mechanisms to better align compensation protocols, bonus design, whatever it is, with effective risk management practices. And that almost by definition means of course, you will have a financial element in bonuses. I mean, that that is a given. But there does need to be much more nuanced and much more carefully designed non-financial risk assessment criteria built in there. And that's no small challenge. We're back to qualitative versus quantitative. And anyone who's been a compliance officer for any length of time will know the challenges and the differences between those two. Another element, I think, is that increased focus on compensation could 
be a really positive tool to not only address conduct risk and evidence culture, but also it could be a really positive driver for it. And you can have much greater emphasis on how results are captured and reported. And that in and of itself could be a fantastic suite of evidence to show any regulator that you've got a great culture and you've got your conduct risk pretty much managed and under control. I mean, we mentioned earlier that, you know, if you've got disgruntled employees, that could be a very poor cultural indicator. If you can get compensation right, that may well be a very positive um, piece of evidence you can show. And then last one, um, I think certainly for me, one of the really big challenges is developing the framework, the assessment protocol, just the line of sight to just how effective compensations, policies and procedures are in balancing that risk and reward and in actually managing, if not curbing behaviours. So I do think there's going to be a lot of work all about how you evidence effectiveness. And again, risk and compliance officers need to be absolutely front and centre in there. Gosh, I had a shopping list of takeaways there, Lindsay. Um, <laughs> what is it from your perspective that firms should take away from this? Um, well, I, I agree with everything that was on your shopping list, Susanna. So um, you know, I think it was well worth uh, running running through them. Um, I, I just want to underscore um, again, you know, the point that I think firms need to be reviewing the pay practices that have been uh, of the last 18 months or wherever we are in the, in, in the COVID. Um, it, and if there is in unfairness, it, it might just be a lack of transparency as well. I mean, that could equally be the case. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, just review and then work out what to do so it doesn't impact your culture um, and possibly lead to misconduct um, in 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 the future. You know, so I think that's that's very important. Vis-a-vis um, -vis ESG, um, if your executives do not have ESG in their remuneration uh, equation, uh, I, I would expect to be explaining to the regulators why it's not there pretty soon. And so um, you get that done. Um, I was just going to throw in um, I, I, my most recent FOI to the FCA came back on whistleblowing reports. And I was quite surprised to see that there's actually been an uptick on in whistleblowing reports about remuneration during the last 12 months. So I uh, no idea of the detail of what that is, but it's interesting. So, uh, and um, and then finally, I would just say, and it's it's kind of to your point about the remuneration committees and accountability, Susanna, is we're starting to see um, a, a trend for shareholder action against not just uh, uh, the 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 votes on pay, but actually the votes on the chairs of the remuneration committee. We haven't seen any of this in financial services um, yet. We haven't seen a chair of remuneration committee in financial services voted down, but as you know, these, these things spread. And so it's just that extra outside layer of having to explain yourself basically, um, which is another, perhaps another interesting uh, one to watch. But yes, uh, remuneration, it's always, it's always controversial. Always fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
And do you know what? One of the big things, I suppose, as, as a final, final takeaway is, you know, in days gone past, remuneration really wasn't anything compliance needed to worry about. Now it is absolutely on the compliance officer's agenda and is going to stay there and get more and more entrenched, I think. Um, there's no way that that's going to get passed off. I mean, obviously, it won't be only the compliance function, but they absolutely need to be involved now. There's there, there's no two ways about that. So as ever, Lindsay, thank you so much for your contribution. And um, thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. I'll include a whole bunch of links to articles that go into more depth on all of this in the episode notes. I'll also put in the usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And last but not least, as ever, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast. And please do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Many thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.